So I got a bunch of questions first. So. All right. I'm not going to answer all that I've gotten, just the ones that I hopefully can get through quickly. I'll do the others tomorrow morning. I feel tired, worn out, depleted. I've been working very hard. Right now, I don't think I can. Uh, I think I have the energy to enter jhana. Um, uh, need better glasses or even access concentration. Uh, how should I use my time on the cushion? Uh, I'd say take a break. You know, instead of pushing quite so hard, go for a walk in the afternoon. This this happens on retreat. I mean, you push, you push, you push, and finally you're just feeling worn out. If that's the case, sometimes the wisest thing to do is take a break. Um, if you come back and you're still feeling depleted, think of all the things we've talked about here and do the one that feels like it's just not such a big push. So we got... Body scan, metta, the five daily reflections, uh, Vedana practice, uh, four elements. Um, yeah, there's a lot you could possibly work with. Uh, but just take it a bit easier. Don't push quite so hard. But yeah, take a break. On my nine and a half month retreat, I had a meltdown one night. You know, I was like, rah, 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 I'm out of here. This is crazy. Rah, rah, rah. <clears throat> and the next morning was like, whoa, what was that about? And then it was, uh, hmm, what am I going to tell a student that has the symptoms I'm having? Take a break. <laughs> What's the difference between samadhi and samatha? So I would say samatha is calm and samadhi is concentrated calm. So samadhi is a type of samatha. Uh, this afternoon I found myself in a different mind state about an ongoing situation in my life. I noticed I was feeling constricted, helpless, and hopeless. Can you give me some advice on how to deal with such states on retreat? Well, this is an aversive state. And for aversion, then the best thing to do is to do metta practice. Okay, so it's like, okay, let me see if I can set this aside and do metta. Now, you don't have to do metta for the difficult people in this situation, but you can do metta for yourself. You can do metta for your your friends, the Dalai Lama, whoever. So that's one thing. Another thing is to just stop and say, all right, what I'm doing doesn't seem to be going anywhere. What can I see behind what's come up? All right, so looking further back behind. All right, what prompted this to come up? Um, I don't know. I mean, just instead of exploring the situation itself, see if you can find other things that are behind it. Um, that's probably the best two suggestions I have. Uh, are the jhanas better than sex? <laughs> well, they're certainly different. <laughs> you, you can't do jhanas with someone else. 
right? So sex is definitely going to produce uh, an interaction of the type you can't have solitary with jhanas. So I would say that they're different. And uh, they're both, yeah, really good. <laughs> is PT the same as prana or chi? I would say PT is probably a type of prana, chi. It's, it's certainly an energy, and I, I would say, yeah, it's, it's a type of that. But I wouldn't say it's the same as all manifestations of prana or chi. I was woken up last night by an unfamiliar and unpleasant sensation in the upper chest. I was wondering if the concentration practice and its associated release of energy unblocks energy channels, and my symptoms were related to this. This is possible. I've certainly had a number of students come to me in an interview and say, it felt like the PT blasted through some blockage. So, yeah, working with this may unblock some sort of blockage or something like that, either the concentration or the PT or even the sukha. I mean, the sukha, if it, I'm correct in its opioids, the opioids, you know, sort of tend to make you relax and so forth. So is that what happened? <sighs> Could be. I don't know. Uh, I noticed that deepening samadhi brings a lot of insights about my psychological patterns and conditioning. Is this a common experience? Yes. Remember the first night I said there were two warnings, no expectations, and if you have unresolved stuff, it might come up. But yeah, any psychological stuff can come up with the concentration. Normally, we just keep that at bay because we're so busy and we just don't want to look at that and it's no problem to keep it out of sight and now you get really concentrated and the stuff comes up. This is fairly common. Uh, uh, Has anyone ever worked with expanding the heart to get to the fifth jhana? Or would this be a foolish thing to do? I would hate it to go pop. (laughs) I don't think it'll go pop. (laughs) All right? Uh, I haven't tried it. People have reported as they send the metta out to larger and larger groups of people, there's a sense of expansion and they can just not stop with the planet Earth, but just expand it out into the universe. So the expansion of metta. So, yeah, I'd say it's worth a try. I rather doubt it would be problematic. I think it would actually be quite quite interesting to play with. Uh, now, don't go all uh, comparing mind on me. The... the These, I think, are from old students. So, uh, I can maintain a stable fifth and sixth jhana, but uh, the observer is not small, and a sense of space consciousness, although limitless, doesn't feel that vast. Is this just due to the amount of concentration going into it? Probably. In other words, I would say spend a longer time in access before even triggering the first jhana. And when you get to four, make sure it's a really good four and stay there. Uh, Is this just 
uh, amount, the amount of concentration go into, or can it be improved by uh, hanging out in these states? It's probably going to be more likely improved by hanging out in four rather than the states themselves, although hanging out in them can help. The other thing is keep your attention out on the edges. So you have a a vast space before you in five. Stay out at the edges, wherever the edges are. Keep your attention out there. But more concentration in access and in four should be helpful. And the instructions for the eighth jhana. Number one instruction for the eighth jhana. Get a good five, six, seven before you try to go to eight. You mean a really good seven. And then stay longer in seven. And then let seven, the big nothing, collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind is in a state that you can't describe, but will stay there. Uh... So what, what goals should I have after learning the jhanas? Uh, should I learn to navigate them better? Uh, up and down? Yeah, working the jhanas up and down is a good thing. I mean, you could learn one, two, three, two, one, or one, two, three, two, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, two, three, four, three, four, three, two, three, two, one. Okay, just play them up and down. That's a useful thing to do. Well, that's the next thing. Should I try jumping jhanas? Uh, Yeah, you could, but I would say probably better to spend your time working back and forth. Um, You know, jumping jhanas, usually you want a longer retreat, so you're really getting in and really getting them quite well. Uh, uh, Try and get the fourth with the white light. Well, it's going to take a long time in access, but yeah, that's a a thing worth doing, see what happens. Uh, Eyes open, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, Staying in a jhana as long as possible, getting it really stable. Yeah, but the most important thing of all... Come out and do insight practice, right? That's where it's at. That's where you're going to get the biggest hit. If you're just sitting there sharpening Manjushri's sword, you never wielded to cut any bonds of ignorance, eventually you got no sword left, right? So the really amazing part is get yourself well concentrated and then come out and investigate reality in some way. Can you please say again at which point while we are in the highest jhanas attained do we move our attention to insight? Yeah, get into, let's say you know number four, right? And so you're in four. Stay there for a while, right? Let's say five or ten minutes. Then start doing your insight practice. So it's really just stay there for a while. Sometimes, you know, I move kind of quickly through, and it's maybe only three or four minutes before I move on to insight practice. So that's also possible. And when we do, is it a case of bringing that quality of attention to the object? There's nothing you have to do intentionally to bring that quality of intention to the object. What you've got to do is just start doing your insight practice 
and the concentration you've generated will be there for whatever you're working on. That's the whole idea. But you don't have to think about that. That just happens. So why do we die? I don't mean heart disease or cancer and stepping in front of a bus. I mean, why do we die? If you were making this up, if you were making this up, would you make it up that we die? I mean, think about it. You get born, that's traumatic enough. And then you do the diaper thing. And finally you can start having fun and they ship you off to school. And you do 12, 16, 24 years of school. And then you can start working. And you work for 40 years. And finally, finally you can have fun and you die. I mean, what's going on here? Maybe we're not doing something we should be doing. What if we hung a lot of crystals in the windows? Now they do that in California. They're still dying. Maybe we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. Do you realize that over 90% of the people that ever ate food are dead? (laughs) So, no, that's not going to work. Well, one thing's for sure. If you don't get born, you don't die. And if you get born, well, sooner or later you're going to wind up dead. So why bother being born if you're just going to wind up dead? I mean, being born's a popular thing to do. Like everybody I know did it. <laughs> Birds do it, bees do it, you know. So why bother being born if you're going to be dead? Well, it seems that Mother Nature has this urge to become. And this becoming leads to birth. And birth eventually winds up in old age, sickness, and death. So becoming, where does becoming come from? Well, this meditation hall didn't used to be a meditation hall. used to be a bunch of, what, bricks and wood and metal and glass probably lying out there. And then all the pieces stuck together... They clung together and it became a meditation hall. So it would appear that becoming depends on clinging. So what about clinging? What do you cling to? Uh, you got old worn out pair of socks, holes in them. Somebody says, hey, can I have those socks? You're like, sure. You're not clinging to that. You cling to the good stuff. Right? The stuff you really want. Stuff you crave. Right? So it would appear that you crave something and when you get it, you cling to it. And clinging leads to becoming birth and death. What about craving? Why do you crave things? Well, what do you crave? Chocolate ice cream. Right? And why? Because it comes in a round container. No, I don't think so. 
Because it's brown? No. Because it tastes good. Right? It produces pleasant Vedana. And if it produces pleasant Vedana, then you want it. You crave it. When you got it, you cling to it. And that produces becoming birth, death. Well, what about these Vedana? Well, the pleasant Vedana of chocolate ice cream, the one that makes you spend your hard-earned money for it, doesn't arise when you see it in the freezer, right, at the grocery store. You just see it. It's like, oh, promise of future pleasant Vedana into the basket. (laughs) And when the checker's checking you out, that's not when you're getting the future pleasant Vedana. And when you get home and you pull it out and it's on the counter while you put away the rest of the groceries, no, that's not it either. When you pull the lid off, that's not it either. When you grab the spoon and you stick it in, still no pleasant Vedana. It's only when ah, contact, taste contact, pleasant Vedana. Oh, more craving is set in, right? I should have gotten two, clinging, (laughs) becoming... Birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. All right, where does contact come from? Well, contact arises because you left your senses hanging out in the environment. Right, you're sitting in here, and there's some noise happening, and you wish it wasn't happening. But you left your ears turned on, and there's going to be contact. Or you're sitting here and the sitting is producing unpleasant Vedana. Well, that's because you left your tactile sensations turned on. Okay, it's the senses. That's where contact comes from. And contact is inevitably going to produce Vedana. And if you're not careful, that'll lead to craving and clinging. And then it's to becoming birth and death. Well, what about these senses? Well, they're pretty much necessary to have a working mind and body. A mind and body without senses would be senseless. Uh, They're how you navigate the environment. They're just part of what's necessary there. And uh, you don't find senses wandering around without a mind and body. It's dependent on having a mind and body. And you get these senses and you leave them hanging out in the environment and there's contacts and there's Vedana and craving, clinging, becoming birth, death. Well, what about mind and body? One thing for sure, mind and body is dependent upon consciousness. If you have a mind and body and it's not conscious, it usually winds up dead sooner or later. I mean, you can force feed them now, but... Uh, you really need a consciousness to make a mind and body work. And it's going to have senses, and they're going to be contacts, Vedna. And if you're not careful, craving, clinging, becoming birth, death. Well, what about consciousness? Consciousness appears to arise due to the interaction of mind and body. It's like mind and body and consciousness are two sheaves of wheat leaning against each other. You pull one away, and the other falls over. Now, supposedly, this being England, you do have consciousness wandering around without mind and body. 
I mean, you've got these castles that are haunted, right? <laughs> but, you know, my experience, I, I haven't run across consciousness that's without a mind and body. And I haven't run across a mind and body that was functioning properly that didn't have consciousness. So they're interdependent. And this only works if there are senses to navigate the environment. And those senses are getting contacts, which produce Vedana. And unless you're careful, it winds up producing craving, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and the rest of the dukkha. This is the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada. Sometimes you see it translated as dependent arising or dependent co-origination. I don't usually use the co part because then I wind up with students talking about codependent origination, and it doesn't mean that. All right. Probably more accurately, we would be interdependent co-origination, but let's just go with dependent origination. What I laid out for you was ten links in the so-called reverse order. One thing being dependent on something that comes before it. The, The general case for dependent origination that the Buddha talked about was this, that, conditionality. With the arising of this, that arises. If this doesn't arise, that doesn't arise. This is necessary conditions. Dependent origination is about necessary conditions. Now, the ten links I gave you are what are found in what the scholars say are some of the earlier teachings on dependent origination. There's a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya in Book 12, which is about dependent origination. Uh, it's sutta number 65 called The City. And in that, the Buddha says that his exploration of dependent origination is what led to his awakening. You can sort of get that. Here's this guy sitting under a tree. He's just decided, I'm going to sit here until the flesh rots from my bones, or I'm going to figure it out. He gets his mind concentrated with the jhanas, and then, why do we die? I mean, that's the ultimate dukkha, right? Why do we die? Uh, Well, I don't know why we die, but if we don't get born, we don't die. Well, why do we get born? And he works his way back through all these things, looking not only for a necessary condition, but a manipulatable necessary condition. Can't do anything about being born. Already did that. Right? You can't prevent dying by not being born. All right? So we're not doing that. Uh, can't prevent being born by no becoming because, well, we already got born. So, And he's working his way back. And he finds that the manipulatable condition is craving. If you don't want dukkha to happen, you don't crave. Right? It's the light switch. You turn it off and the lights don't come on. Or you turn it off and the dukkha doesn't come on. And so we summarize this with the Four Noble Truths. Now, usually when dependent origination is, de- is presented, the most common way there are 12 links 
And there are two links preceding consciousness. So rather than saying consciousness and mind and body are interdependent, what's given is that consciousness depends upon sankharas. Sankhara is perhaps the most important word in Pali to understand. It's certainly a difficult one to translate. You see it translated as conditions, conditioned things, uh, formations, mental formations, karmic formations. I'm not buying the, any of these as being really good. I like Tanisaro Bhikkhu's fabrications, and I especially like Santikaro's concoctions. The word Sankara means something that's made or created. So this is a concoction, right? <coughs> Somebody dug up a rock and got some stuff out of it and made it into this shape, and now it's a bell. Or is it a helmet? (laughs) Which is it? We concoct it as what it is. This table. Table to you and me. Bus shelter to a leprechaun. (laughs) Okay? So the objects in the universe, we concoct them as whatever they're used for. It's a striker. Or, I don't know, you know, could be kind of mash things. Or... So we find, we, we take a piece of the universe and we manipulate it in some way and we give it some identity and we perceive it like that. We are concocting the things of the universe. And not only the objects, but the ideas. Love, truth, beauty, uh, free will, determinism, they're all concoctions. They're things that we are making to try and help us deal with being embedded in the environment. And some of them are physical objects and some of them are mental ideas. We're missing the point that the universe is actually a seamless whole. We are ignoring that. And we're chopping it up into bits and pieces and then manipulating the pieces and then clinging to the pieces. And that produces sadhuka. So ignorance is what sankharas depend upon, ignoring the holistic unfolding universe. Now, it's quite obvious why we have a tendency to ignore it. That's because our little pea brains can't take in the whole universe. It's just way too big. So, in order to deal with the environment, we chop it up into manageable bits and pieces and manipulate those bits and pieces. The problem is, we think that our chopping it up into bits and pieces is the whole thing that's going on. We are ignoring the bigger picture. So, that's the 12 links in forward order, ignorance, sankharas or concoctions, consciousness, mind and body, or materiality and mentality, the six senses, contact, vedana, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, death, or birth, dukkha. What does it mean? Okay, so we got these 12 things. What does it mean? Well, the orthodox answer, which you can find in the Vasudhimaga, and you can find a lot of writings to support it, 
is that this model is of three lifetimes. Your previous life, you were ignorant and you, well, they take Sankara as karmic formations. You acted in certain ways, you generated karma, and that led to this lifetime where you have a consciousness, mind and body, with senses that get contacts, that experience Vedna, and if you're not careful, this craving and clinging. And because of the clinging, there will be a future life. And that becoming, which arises because of the clinging, leads to birth in a future life, and of course, eventually death in that life. This is, as I say, the orthodox understanding. And on a scale of 1 to 100, I give it a 0% chance of being what the Buddha was talking about. (laughs) You don't find evidence for this in the suttas. You could find evidence for a two-lifetime model, but I think the suttas where you find that evidence is our later compositions. Uh, The three-lifetime model actually contains a serious internal contradiction. There are many suttas where the Buddha is saying, with the ceasing of ignorance, there's a ceasing of sankharas. With the ceasing of sankharas, a ceasing of consciousness. With it all the way up to with the ceasing of birth, there's a ceasing of dukkha. Right? So, you want dukkha to go away completely, you've got to uproot ignorance. But the ignorance is in your previous life. Now, how are you going to uproot the ignorance of your previous life? You probably don't even remember your previous life. And you don't have any control over your previous life. Nothing you do in this life is going to change your previous life, right? The Buddha was not stupid enough to make up something like that. The guy was a genius. It turns out there's a sutta, very little known, that lays out what is probably the first recension, the first discourse on dependent origination. It's in the Sutta Nipata, the uh, little collection in the Kutika Nikaya. That sutta has about 80 suttas, some of which are quite ancient. Book four and five, most of the scholars agree this is really early material. And in fact, many scholars would say the contents of book four is the earliest material we have. It depicts a solitary wanderer. So this would be the Buddha before he had followers. There's no monasteries or anything like that. There's this one really sharp guy wandering around with people asking him questions. It says in the Vinaya, in the stories of the Buddha's life, that he spent the first three years after his enlightenment pretty much by himself. And only after three years did people begin to become monks and follow him around. So I'm guessing that book four, most of the suttas, are from that time. And the 11th sutta in there is entitled Quarrels and Disputes. And someone is asking the Buddha, where do quarrels and disputes come from? Why all this arguing? And the Buddha says it's because people find things dear. Things are endearing. Well, now, quarrels and disputes, that's dukkha, right? And things being dear, well, that's not too different from clinging, right? 
So then the person asks, well, where does endearment come from? Well, it comes from desire. Mm, Desire, that's a lot like craving, right? Beginning to see the pattern here? Where does desire come from? From the notion it is pleasant or it is not pleasant. The word Vedana doesn't appear, but the concept is identical. Pleasant or unpleasant. So desire is from pleasant and unpleasant. Just like craving is from Vedana. And so where does pleasant and unpleasant come from? Contact. Exact same word. And contact? Nope, the senses don't get mentioned. From mind and body. You don't get any sense contact if you don't have a mind and body. Right? You've got to have that. So contact is dependent upon mind and body. And then the sutta takes a slightly different turn from most dependent origination suttas. And it says, how can we get beyond mind and body? How can we stop the arising of materiality? And usually what comes next is consciousness. But what comes in this sutta is sanya. Remember, sanya is perception. But it turns out that sanya can also mean consciousness. But it's not just any sort of sanya. If we take the word perception, it's not the usual perception. It's not abnormal perception. It's not lack of perception. And it's not perception that is incorrect. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it would appear that the materiality disappears when we stop perceiving the world as made up of discrete objects. That we need to change our perception, we need to change our consciousness and see the holistic unfolding which we are ignoring. Now, this is my interpretation of the rather cryptic verse, uh, but I believe that's what's being said. But very clearly, we have an early depiction of dependent origination. Dukkha, which is quarrels and disputes, is dependent upon endearment, which is dependent upon desire, which is dependent upon Pleasant and unpleasant, which is dependent upon contact, which is dependent upon mind and body, and the way out of it is change your perception. There is nothing to do with multiple lifetimes in this. And in fact, this is not even a linear explanation of anything. It's a series of necessary conditions. And the Buddha is exploring this series of necessary conditions and finding a way out of dukkha by perceiving the world differently. So although there is a great deal that is talked about, written about, and in the commentaries in 20th, 21st century material about how Dependent origination is an explanation of something. I don't think that's the case. I think it's an exploration of dependent conditionality, or as we would say, necessary conditions.
In particular, what the Buddha is saying is you need to perceive the world in a different way if you're going to escape dukkha. Your old way of perceiving it as a bunch of things that you're going to claim as your own and hang on to only leads to dukkha. There are some suttas that support this view. One of them is Majjhima Nikaya number 38, the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. In that sutta, Sati, the son of a fisherman, is a monk who holds the view that his consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation. And some of the other monks learn of Sati's pernicious view, and they go to him and they say, do not say that, Sati, the Blessed One does not say that. For many times the Blessed One has said, consciousness is a dependently originated phenomena. But although those monks questioned and cross-questioned Sati, he would not give up his pernicious view. So they went to the Buddha and reported all that happened. And the Buddha said, Tell Sati the master calls. <laughs> and that monk went and found Sati and said, The master calls you, Sati. And Sati went to the Buddha, saluted him, sat down on one side. And the Buddha said, Sati, is it true that you say that consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation? Yes, Venerable Sir, as I understand the teachings of the Blessed One, consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation. Sati, what is consciousness? Venerable Sir, consciousness is that which thinks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Sound kind of reasonable to you? Your consciousness is that part that thinks and feels and gets the results of karma, right? The Buddha's response was, You foolish man, when have you ever known me to teach Dhamma like that? I have said many times, consciousness is a dependently originated phenomena. Monks, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me in the way that Sati is explaining it? No, Venerable Sir. (laughs) We have understood that consciousness is a dependently originated phenomena. Good monks, it's good that you understand this. Consciousness is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. When consciousness arises due to eye and sights, it's eye consciousness. When it arises due to ear and sounds, ear consciousness. Nose and smells, nose consciousness. Tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. Body and textures, body consciousness. Mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. Just as a fire is reckoned dependent upon the condition on which it depends. A fire burning in a forest is a forest fire. A fire burning on a house is a house fire. A fire burning on rubbish is a rubbish fire. A fire burning on cow dung is a cow dung fire. In just the same way, consciousness is reckoned dependent upon the conditions on which it depends. Now, the sutta goes on from here with what we could call a catechism on dependent origination. A bunch of questions and answers. The Buddha asks the monks a lot of questions about dependent origination. 
To me, it seems as though this catechism is a later insertion. The whole flavor of the sutta changes. It's very dry. It's extremely tedious. And it goes on for page after page after page until it gets to the point where the Buddha says, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, that is, in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? Being what? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, in terms of dependent origination, would you run ahead to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? Being what? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present, wondering, am I? Am I not? What am I? Where has this being come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Are you saying this from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. Good, monks. It's good that you know this from your own experience. Okay, so, Sati thinks his consciousness transmigrates, and the Buddha says, no, look at it in terms of dependently originated phenomena. There's not an entity to be found. There's nobody here. There are streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. What goes on is the result of the actions generated by the streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. There's no entity to be found. You don't wonder was there an entity in the past. You don't wonder if there's an entity in the future. You don't even wonder if there's an entity now. You see it's just dependently originated phenomena interacting. All right. So the Buddha's answer to the reincarnation question is, if you're thinking reincarnation, you're making Sati's mistake. You're thinking there's an entity that goes on. There's just streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. There's another sutta on dependent origination. This one comes from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses on Dependent Origination. This is number 1215, the Katyanagota Sutta. Perhaps the most profound sutta in the entire Pali Canon. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living at Savati. And there the venerable Katyana Gota approached the Blessed One, saluted him, and sat down on one side. Now, notice this is the venerable Katyana Gota, not some monk. So we can kind of expect this is going to be an advanced teaching. And then the venerable Katyana Gota said to the Blessed One, Right view, right view, it is said, Venerable sir, in what way is there right view? This world, Katyana, for the most part, depends upon the concept of it is and the concept of it is not. But for one who sees the arising of the world as it is with correct wisdom, one does not think in terms of 
it is not, and for one who sees the ceasing of the world as it is with correct wisdom, one does not think in terms of it is. Katyana, this world is caught up in views, opinions, ideas, and they are clung to. But one with right view doesn't get caught up in views and opinions, doesn't get caught up in clingings like this. One with right view does not take a stand about my atta. Okay, the word atta is the word we translate as self. But it also has the connotation of soul. The atta that we're looking for, the one we really want to find, is not just the little guy behind the eyeballs pulling the levers. It's the essence of me that someday is going to be eternally happy. And the Buddha is saying, one with right view does not take a stand about my atta. He's not saying there is one. He's not saying there isn't one. He's saying, don't take a stand there. One with right view sees that when there's an arising, there's only dukkha arising. And when there's a ceasing, there's only dukkha ceasing. In this way, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Now that, when one sees there's a rising, there's only dukkha arising. And when one sees there's a ceasing, there's only dukkha ceasing. That baffled me for years. It's like, uh, I don't quite think I get it. Until I came to the realization that dukkha not only means suffering and unsatisfactoriness and stress and unpleasantness and bummer, but not a source of lasting happiness. One with right view sees that when there's an arising, it's not a source of lasting happiness that's arising. And when there's a ceasing, It's not a source of lasting happiness that's ceasing. In this way, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. Katyana. Everything exists. That is one extreme. Nothing exists. That is the opposite extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, a tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. With this as necessary condition, that arises. Without this necessary condition, that does not arise. So the Buddha is saying, don't think in terms of it is, don't think in terms of it is not. Don't go for entityhood. See that there's just conditioned arising. One thing arises dependent on other things. Now, actually the sutta as we have it in the Pali Canon doesn't give the this-that conditionality there. It lists the 12 links in forward order as arising and the 12 links in forward order as ceasing, which makes no sense at all given the context of the sutta. And I was quite interested to see that one of the scholars thought that that was a later addition because I thought, that's wrong. This has stepped on what was originally there. And I was even more interested to see that the Chinese Agama version of the sutta has, when this arises, it arises dependent on that. 
And when that doesn't happen, this doesn't arise. And then the twelve links. So I'm guessing the Buddha gave the this, that conditionality. And somebody came along later and said, hey, it'll sound better if we throw in and threw in the extra stuff. When you're reading the suttas, you gotta you got to look for what makes sense and try and figure out how the stuff that doesn't make sense might have been added or whatever. But the key thing about this sutta, the Buddha's not saying there isn't a self. He's not saying there is a self. He's saying don't take a stand about a self. Don't get caught up in it is. Don't get caught up in it is not. What you need to see is there's nothing but streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. In one of the suttas, Sariputta quotes the Buddha as saying, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. Basically, an extremely fruitful insight practice is to start examining the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. You can use the 10 links or the 12 links as a template to get you started. It's actually very important to realize that, yeah, you've got a mind and body that's conscious, and you're getting sense contacts, and they're producing Vedana, and if you're not careful, that leads to craving and clinging, and eventually to dukkha. But look at the general cases as well. See, can you get beyond just the, just the entities out there? Can you see the tree, and see your interaction with the tree, and see that you're not separate from the tree, You're breathing in what the tree is breathing out, and the tree is breathing in what you're breathing out. This separateness is an optical illusion. It's all vastly interconnected. There's really just the universe, and it's unfolding. And the way that it's unfolding is lawful. Each thing arises dependent on other things cause and effect. So this is dependent origination at, shall we say, the deeper levels. The levels that you don't generally find in the little bits of literature that are around about it. But it turns out to be an enormously useful way of examining reality. Because it helps you understand that everything is in flux. Nothing is going to provide lasting satisfaction. And it's all empty empty of entityhood. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. The three characteristics of the universe that you've got to come to terms with so that you can let go and attain awakening. Any questions? very difficult not to think what's going to happen to me Yes. as being I mean it's so embedded in everything we do one trick that I've tried to use not tried, do use is she won't be me so the person who walks out of here is a different one and 
this is quite effective in some ways. Mm -hmm. But I would appreciate some more help in this kind of... Because I catch my... Even though I do that a lot, I still catch myself up thinking it's going to be me suffering if I don't get enough sleep tonight or it's going to be me suffering if I eat too much and get fat or, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it catches me again and again. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to get past. And if you get past it, you've done what needs to be done. You're fully awakened. <laughs> so, yeah, this is what we're working on. Um, the Buddha suggested, uh, you know, clean up your act, concentrate your mind, investigate reality, and see what's going on. But I promise tomorrow night I'll specifically address the self and what we can see there and maybe give you a few more hints. But I think it's going to take more than five minutes for me to do that. So I'll... Because in a way you are implying that all of these insight practices, actually, they're all getting it. They're all taking you in that direction. Basically, what seems to be necessary is you get enough deep understanding of reality in terms of either the impermanent nature of everything, the changing nature of everything, and or the dukkha nature, the unsatisfactory, the non-fulfilling nature of everything, and or the empty nature of everything. And you get it so deeply that you let go. And when you let go completely, then you experience, ain't nobody home. And when you have experienced it, then it makes it easier not to get caught. And you experience it enough, you stop getting caught. So, yeah. Um, this idea of not self, and forgive me if I'm not getting this, if I sound completely ignorant here, but the statement of the word nothing in, see, there's nothing but um, dependent interacting streams of phenomena happening seems to imply there is no self. Buddha said, Buddha said, don't talk about my atta. No, don't don't take a stand about my atta. It's a difference from talking about it. All right. In another sutta, he says a tathagata can use the words "I, me, and mine" and not be fooled by them. All right. So when I say there's nothing but dependently originated phenomena rolling on, more accurately would be there's only dependently originated phenomena rolling on. Okay, But there's streams that come together and they make this stream of dependently originated phenomena that I'm calling Lee, right? And uh, I have some idea that it's been around for at least a little while and hopefully it's going to stick around for a little while longer from the relative perspective. When I can step back and get into a more absolute, more universal, more ultimate perspective, then there's just all the actions of the genetics of my parents and the things of being human and growing up in Leland, Mississippi and going to the university I went to and my ex-wife and my best friend and uh, it's just all that. And I realized that when I put it down to as far as my sense of touch goes, I'm missing the bigger picture. So you got to swap perspectives appropriately. Does that help? So from an absolute perspective, there's no soul. Consciousness arises as an epiphenomenon. Yeah, yeah. And the sense of self arises as an epiphenomenon. 
But it's not the only perspective. And so sometimes, like crossing the street, highly recommend operating from the relative perspective where it's me and that's a bus and I'm not stepping in front of it. Yeah, consciousness is a is a more difficult thing to investigate. Uh, one, you want to see that consciousness does arise and pass away. Okay, now you can't see it's not there because if you were conscious that you weren't conscious, you'd be conscious. But you can realize that there are large chunks of time every night where you're not dreaming. And it's just, you're not conscious. So it comes and goes. It's not permanent. So that's one way to start working on it. Two, you can pay attention to the kind of consciousness that you have. In other words, what kind of consciousness, what kind of fuel is generating the consciousness that you have? Right? You get some really bad news and you're upset, and the fuel that's generating it is the bad news that came in, right? Or somebody says, wow, what you've done is so fantastic, thank you so much, and now you've got the proud, feeling really good consciousness. Again, generated by something external. It doesn't operate by itself. And you can also notice that consciousness always has an object. You're never conscious uh, without an object. Even though the object, say in the seventh jhana, is nothing, you're conscious of nothing. Zero is a valid number. Or even in the eighth jhana, you're conscious of, well, some state of mind that you can't describe, but still you're conscious of the eighth jhana. And when you go into the state of Naroda, you're not conscious of anything. And you come out and time's gone by and... Yeah. So you've got to sort of play around the edges of the coming and going and noticing what triggers it and stuff like that. But, but do you then think that kind of practicing the higher chanas is, is a good aid? Or oh, yeah. Necessary? I don't know about necessary, but it's certainly helpful. Getting your mind nice and quiet, stepping into these altered states of consciousness, seeing that, yeah, you can manipulate your consciousness into very different places, yeah, you begin to see that yeah, it's not a thing. It's an epiphenomena. Yeah. With another hand, yes. Um, what's come to mind is um, it's not it's not to do with um, consciousness ourselves, but it's somewhere in the suttas, and the Buddha said um, there is an unborn, un, unoriginated, uncreated. The unborn. Unmade, unbecome, unconcocted. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's not tomorrow night's talk, but the next night's talk. <laughs> and the sutta reference is Udana eight point three. But yeah, I will go into that in detail. Could you say a little more about the link between clinging and becoming? Yeah. Yeah, the link between clinging and becoming, that's kind of weird. It's like, huh? I mean, what I gave you, you know, building clinging pieces together, it's it's not very good. (laughs) 
uh, Mrs. Reese Davis, Caroline Reese Davids, who was one of the first translators, one of the early translators of Buddhism, referred to dependent origination as this mysterious old rune. Yeah, yeah, something that is kind of weird, it's strange, it doesn't quite seem obvious what's going on here. I think that what we have is a collection of necessary conditions put together in a, as a mnemonic device, an aid to memory. These are some important things you might want to remember. Furthermore, the early recension of dependent origination from the Sutta Nipata using quarrels and disputes, dear, craving, pleasant, unpleasant, or desire, craving, unpleasant, contact, name and form, and perception seems to have undergone a change into the words that we know. There is a teaching in the Vedas called the Hymn of Creation. And the words used in the Hymn of Creation basically are saying that out of ignorance there arose sankharas. And from the sankharas consciousness arose. Consciousness gave your eyes to mind and body. In other words, the dependent origination pattern that we know is basically taking the hymn of the Vedic hymn of creation and investing it with a different meaning. My guess is the Buddha came up with dependent origination as found in Sutta Nipata 4.11. And then when he got Brahminical monks, Brahmins, who knew this hymn, and they were like, oh yeah, this is like the hymn of creation. He switched to using those words because they already knew the words to the tune. And he just gave it a new meaning. He frequently does this. I mentioned the Asavas when I gave the sutta. You know, the last thing was the destruction of the Asavas, the intoxicants. The word Asava comes from Jains. And they talked about the influxes, right? The karmic bad stuff that's coming from your actions and you've got you to stop the influxes. So the Buddha takes the same word, turns it on its head, makes it outflows, and actually goes back to the original meaning, which meant intoxicant. So the Buddha's all the time taking ideas from different spiritual traditions and twisting them slightly, sometimes giving them very opposite meanings. I would guess that the words that we have and the pattern we have there actually is the Vedic hymn of creation, words with the idea of dependent origination as first spelled out in Sutta Nipata 4.11, tacked on top of that rather than what the ideas that came from the Vedas. Now, I'm assuming the Buddha did that, but it's possible it happened even after his lifetime. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Unless you look at it, okay, if you're clinging to be alive, then when you die, that clinging will cause you to get a new body and you'll become again, which is the standard way of doing it. But we just saw the Buddha wasn't talking about stuff like that. In fact, he called somebody foolish for having that idea. I mean, one would 
would be that if you cling to an object, you kind of make it an object in a sense. So it, it sort of becomes an object in, in, in a way. And you become the owner of that object. Mm-hmm. You generate a sense of self around that so object. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a very interesting book by uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa called Practical Paticca Samapada, Practical Dependent Origination. You used to have to order it from Thailand, but somebody transcribed the whole thing and it's now available uh, as HTML pages on the web. And you can read the whole thing. And there's a link to it from my reading list. Ajahn Buddhadasa was basically talking about dependent origination moment to moment. Okay, so... You have a mind and body that's conscious. It gets sense contacts through its senses. This produces Vedana. And then if you're not careful, the craving sets in and the clinging. And now you become a self. You give birth to a self. But these selves, well, you might have had ego death at some point. Somebody, you know, took your thing you were clinging to or said that was a stupid thing or whatever. And no! You're bad again. You've got to recreate yourself. So, yeah, I think this is a, also a very useful way of looking at it. So, yeah, I definitely recommend that way. But I think from looking at what's in Sutta Nipata 411, that wasn't the original way of looking at it. That the Buddha was just collecting some necessary conditions that would lead him back to the realization you want to get out of dukkha, you've got to change your perception of the world. In particular, you've got to change it away from objects to streams of this, that conditionality. No, no, no. Consciousness is dependent upon the interaction of mind and body. Mind being, shall we say, the unconscious bits of the nervous system, what we would call the subconscious and the unconscious. Right, just, just the, there's a distinction between consciousness and mind. Yes. Mind generally is said to be made up of four parts. You've got Vedana, you've got perceptions, you've got memories, thoughts, emotions, sankharas, and you got consciousness. So consciousness is one part of mind. So the other three parts, interacting with the body, give rise to consciousness. So that's the way it's generally explained. Sorry, can you say that again? Can you go through that again? Okay, I'll do it a lot tomorrow. <laughs> Promise. Okay, so we've got the mind, which is made up of four parts. Vedana, perceptions, sankharas, thoughts, emotions, memories, and consciousness. So consciousness is one part of mind. But it takes the other stuff happening to generate consciousness and the interaction of the body. (coughs) And you said there was something else? Correct. But to me, it appears as though the mind is just a collaboration of the five senses internally. Um, so your, you know, the mind exists because of the senses. Without the senses, the mind would exist. Yeah, I would agree with that.
and the mind as separate things that, that coexist? Uh, the Buddha split it out basically for pedagogical purposes rather than for metaphysical purposes. Okay? It's helpful to look at the mind and consciousness as part of the mind, to investigate that sort of on its own, just like to investigate Vedana on its own. Vedana is part of the mind, right? It happens in the mind. I mean, we can actually determine what part of the mind base, the brain, is active when the Vedana show up. So don't try and do, you know, physics or metaphysics with this stuff. Look at it more as pedagogical purposes, as ways that we experience the world. Does that help? Uh, sort of. I think we're to think about it then. Okay. Um, and yeah, the, the other thing, sorry, um, was that in the sutra it said that the, 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 consciousness, uh, the consciousness of the senses, like the, uh, the touch sense is like uh, wood being on fire or whatever, and you've got all these different things being on fire that I mean, what's the fire itself? Not, not what's burning, but what's the fire? The fires are greed, hatred, and delusion. And the, what's burning, in one sutta it's the senses and the sense objects, and the Vedana from that, and the perceptions from that. Okay, But the fires are the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the fuel, I mean, it does talk about that, and I'll talk about it tomorrow, is the five aggregates, the five khandhas. So if we take the four parts of mind and we throw in body, then we've got the five aggregates. This is what I, where our greed, hatred, and delusion arises around these. Just um, what, for two things, okay? The first one was for you. Um, this, the reason it's a sixth sense, if, if you think of a flying pink elephant and you've got it there, so you can actually create things in your mind that haven't come in from external uh, phenomena. You know, you, you have senses. So it's a source of uh, extra information. Yeah, and it works really well to talk about how the mind works, to take the mind as a sixth sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard, or, or read somewhere, I can't remember, that the um, Vedic creation hymn and dependent origination. It, I think it was the Buddha. He, he, he was visited by a Brahmin, and um, the Brahmin said, you know, asked him about the Vedic creation hymn, and the Buddha turned it back on him and said, you know, basically uh, debunked it. I don't know that sutta. If you come across the reference, let me know. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find it. Okay, yeah, no, I'd be very interested to hear that. Um, it seems to me that, that you've used consciousness in two different ways. Yeah, the suttas is five different ways, so I'm, i still got more to go. <laughs> one, one is as a, a potentiality of a functioning human mind-body system. Uh-huh. Um, and the other is as the emergent phenomenon that occurs when that system comes into contact with... Uh, uh, something in the outside world. So I think those two uses of consciousness may be a, right. a, a little a little hard to sort out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the word vijnana 
it gets used in at least four or five different ways in the suttas. And there's one sutta, probably a late sutta, where it's used in four different ways in like one page, which can be quite quite confusing. So when we talk about consciousness as a, as a part of mind, it's not a thing. It's yeah. not that consciousness is a thing in the mind. It's just a potentiality that the, uh, of the mind when it comes into contact. Yeah, exactly. Well put. Sim- similarly, the, the simile with the fires is also, the, the, the fire um, is analogous to the, um, uh, the process or the, or the um, phenomenon of perception. Um, it's, it, fire is what happens when wood comes in contact or, or a fuel for the fire comes in contact with something that can, can set the fire alight. It emerges into fire. Similarly with, with consciousness, you get a working human body and mind and a uh, an object in the, that the senses can apprehend, they come together, you get consciousness. Right. Yeah, it's an emergent phenomenon, just like fire is. Um, I want to go back to the question from you behind me about, uh-huh. about clinging and, um, and becoming, because it seems to me that, that this is the heart of, of the whole problem, um, and, and, and it also gives you a one-life perspective on overcoming birth and death because <coughs> clinging leads to becoming and you stop clinging, end of story now why Why should, your question was why, was about the relationship between clinging and, and becoming but it seems, can I borrow your, yes. your helmet um, <laughs> I, I'm clinging to this, not only in this moment does it make a, a, a me who's doing the clinging because I, I have nice whatever you call it nice feeling, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the persistence of this formation here allows me to think I'm carrying on. Yes. It gives the beginning of this problem of it's the same me, it's the same me, and I'm keeping on going. Right, yeah, and very good. that won't good. happen if I just go, oh, stuff. Right, yeah. We generate a craver and a clinger because that's part of it is that there's an object and a one who is wanting it and the one who's got it. So yeah, we keep making up the sense of self based around that. Yeah, very good. Um, I can't remember again, one of my teachers said that the problem between clinging and becoming is due to, I mean, you know, obviously, because, you know, it's due to the, an ignorance right at the beginning, which is a, 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 a misunderstanding about our relationship to things. This is what Lee's been talking about the whole time. Yeah, don't. Which is, um, that, you know, the, the, the misunderstanding that we have is that these things are going to give us happiness, they're going to give us, you know, a, a lasting happiness. Right. But, but they don't. And because of that misunderstanding, we create the self. We cling to things. We want it. But we make it become. It's a, it's a, just a, a psychological dependence. <laughs> it's actually a useful way to make the organism survive long enough to procreate, but it doesn't solve the problem of dukkha. And we got to get a little smarter. Jesus yeah. Yeah, genes don't care about dukkha. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, 
we need to get beyond entityhood, right? This entityhood and this entityhood. And see that there turns out not only to be nothing worth clinging to, but nothing that can be clung to. It's all just going through your fingers. Okay. So we're going to take a break short enough for me to walk to the back of the room and turn down the lights, and then I'm going to do metta. In order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. Imagine that in your heart is a beautiful lake, a lake in a really wonderful setting, a lake full of warm, clear water. And then imagine that you go jump in the lake and just hang out, enjoying the warm, clear water in this beautiful setting, the lake of your heart. Now think of someone you care about and have them join you in the lake. See the joy on their face as they hang out in the warm, clear water in the lake of your heart. (coughs) Think of other people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and have each of them join you in this really magnificent lake in the center of your heart.
Think of your acquaintances, people like your neighbors and co-workers, people you see in stores and restaurants you frequent. Again, bring them to mind one by one and have them join you in this beautiful lake with its warm, clear water. Think of someone you find difficult. It's a big lake. You can find a spot for them as well. And there's plenty of room for everyone in this room to come to the lake, enjoy the warm, clear water in this magnificent setting. You should also invite everyone from Gaia House to come. In fact, the lake's big enough, it can hold all the neighbors from around here. The lake of your heart just goes on and on and on. You can have everybody in England come, take the day off, Come to the lake. In fact, the lake is so big that everyone in Europe can come. All find a nice spot, just hanging out in the beautiful setting. The lake of your heart is so big that everyone on this planet can just take the day off and come hang out at the lake of your heart. Probably do the world a whole lot of good. Put your attention back on yourself, hanging out at the lake, surrounded by the people you're close to, enjoying the warm, clear water and the magnificent setting. (laughs) May all beings everywhere be happy.